0: Genesis chapter 1, let's turn in our Bibles there, Genesis 1, John chapter 5, verse 46, Jesus said, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? On the other hand, if you trust Jesus, then you know who wrote down Genesis. You know who penned it. We understand God is the author of all Scripture, and this is His Word, but the penman, the writer, the inspired was none other than Moses. And in fact, Jesus quoted from all five books of Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and with each one attributed the book to Moses. How do you know that the first five books are written by Moses? That's how you know. Because Jesus said so. To me, the most compelling proof of Genesis and the creation story, as written by Moses, but even more so, as legitimate history comes from Jesus. He authenticated Adam and Eve in Matthew 19, verses 4 and 5. And these verses aren't up there, I just couldn't fit them. He validated Abel in Matthew 23, verse 35. He confirmed Noah, Matthew 24, verse 27. He verified Abraham, John chapter 8, verses 56 through 58, and several other places. Throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, you know something's legitimate if Jesus quotes from it. Or if Jesus declares it. How in the world can you believe that Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a whale? Come on, that's a crazy story. Jesus believed it. And so I do. Daniel was a prophet the critics say no way he could have written the things he wrote at the time he claimed they claim that he wrote them I mean it's like reading a history book ahead of time exactly and Jesus proclaimed Daniel as prophet so I believe him if you can't believe it then you got to really ask the question do I trust Jesus do I believe Him? Because He confirmed all these things. And if you want further uh, confirmation, Luke chapter 3, verse 23 through 38, names 70 people in the direct lineage of Jesus Christ going all the way back to Adam. That's what I call creation confirmation. And if you believe Jesus... Then you must believe in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. So, what happened? What happened? Some open up Genesis and they read verse 1 and they read it as a summary verse, a summary sentence, a general overall intro, like a heading almost, to really the rest of the chapter. I would disagree with that. I believe what we read in verse 1 is an independent narrative. Partially because God didn't borrow, He borrowed, as we talked about on Sunday. But what we find as we come to verse 2 is the earth and the deep were already here. And if they're already here, and then we go on into the creation story, then clearly God is borrowing from and using these substances in creation. No, in the beginning, God borrowed, created something from nothing, the heavens and the earth. Now the trouble is that God created he, he did this marvelous thing, but in verse 2 they're described as formless and void, which in the Hebrew is tohu va bohu, which is not some kind of you know, Asian health diet. That would be Tofu Vabohu. I don't know. To, tohu bohu. It's the Hebrew for formless and void. What we see when we come to verse 2, after the glorious confirmation, description, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, something from nothing He made, and suddenly in verse 2 we have a soggy, muddled wasteland. Well, that's just the way God did it creation in chaos started with a mess and kind of began to form out of the mess and I have trouble with that for several reasons verse 1 is a very orderly statement of God creating from nothing the heavens and the earth and our God is not a God of confusion he's not a God of disorder he does things well he does things right but again the earth was formless and void in 1814 thomas chalmers scotland's greatest 19th century churchman that's what he was known as i kind of like that i like to be known as a great churchman you know we we got to a time in in the church where people heard the word church and kind of disdained it yeah you don't want to say church you don't want church in the title of your gathering of your little group you, got to avoid, you don't want to be called a churchman that sounds all stuffy and uptight I don't know, I think it's kind of a good thing being a churchman, churchwoman so this Thomas Chalmers comes along and popularizes in 1814 what you may have heard, gap theory gap theory and what gap theory proclaims is there's a span between verse 1 and verse 2 now depending on what your take is Some see this as a creation compromise. That is, creationists compromising with modern scientists, modern as in in the 1800s. That things were happening. And geologists, most geologists at the time, were believers, were Christians. But geological science began to look at least as though perhaps we had things older than 6,000 years and if you run the biblical genealogy, as I have done, you recognize, wow, we're, we're looking at about a 6,000-year-old earth. But, but these Christians, who were also scientific men, were struggling with this whole thing, and Chalmers popularized this idea that perhaps there was an old earth 5 billion years ago, verse 1. And, and then verse 2... Well, after it all got messed up and destroyed, and by the way, that allows time for the dinosaurs to be here and comets to collide and all kinds of chaos to happen. Five billion years goes by in verse 1, and then in verse 2, you get the result of some great cataclysmic event that messed up the five billion years of verse 1. And that was popular Christian belief throughout the 18th and 19th centuries and on into the 20th century. In fact, the Schofield Reference Bible, which is a good reference Bible, describes verse 1 as, quote, "...a dateless past that gives scope for all the geologic ages." It allows again for the rise and fall of dinosaurs, for the ancient fossil record. It allows then for this catastrophic calamity before then a restored recreation in verse two and following. That actually, verse two isn't even a recreation. Verse two is the mess, and picking up in verse three, it's re- God recreates the earth. And verse one was its own deal. Now, if you're listening closely, you might be wondering, "Well, wait, Rick, where?" Isn't that what you said you think? No, it's not. Chalmers, by the way, before I share more on what I think, Chalmers was not alone in his belief of gap theory. In fact, it wasn't even new to the 19th century. Some would say, oh, that's one of those 18th century things, you know, or 19th century things. That's one of those those guys in the 1800s were coming up with all kinds of wackadoodle stuff. So we can't really... No, this goes back way, way further than that. In fact, many great Jewish and Christian thinkers for the last couple thousand years believed that before verse 2, some kind of great upheaval happened to explain what's said in verse 2 that the earth was formless and void. Tohu vabohu. A complete mess. Just so you know I'm not making this stuff up, Rabbi Akiva bin Yosef, From 50 to 135 AD, that far back, he declared something similar to gap theory, a span between verse 1 and 2. Justin Martyr in 150. Tertullian in 200. Tertullian's one I've quoted a lot, I've mentioned a lot, because this guy was a solid follower of Jesus Christ, a biblical scholar. Tertullian believed in gap theory of a sort. Julius Africanus in 220, Gregory of Nyssa in 386, Augustine in the 4th century, Theodoret in the 5th century, several more down the years in the 13th century, Thomas Aquinas, brilliant philosopher and believer, considered gap theory as a legitimate idea. In the 19th and 20th centuries, men like Franz Dellich. If you've heard me quote Kyle and Delich, one of the best commentaries on the Hebrew Scriptures out there. Alfred Adersheim, a Messianic Christian who wrote some important works. C.S. Lewis believed in gap theory. And so did Francis Schaeffer. So many of these thinkers also believed, and, and listen closely to this, while they believe there's something in between, a gap or a span between verses 1 and 2, they also believed in a young earth. That is, from the moment of creation on forward, we're still talking 6,000 years, roughly. Not stuffing billions of years into the gap between verses 1 and and, and verse 3, but they accepted, they believed and taught that something earth-shattering took place, and that's where I land. That's my personal opinion, and I'm not going to give it to you as doctrine because I wasn't there and neither were you. (laughs) So the best we can do is look at Scripture and say, okay, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. Which means we have one of two options. Either God begins creation with formlessness and voidness, either He creates that way, mess into creation, or, verse 2, is the result of something. Something happened. I don't personally see a need to appease evolutionary theory. But I do believe there's a need to be biblical. So we look at the scripture. We look at the text. And by the way, verse 2 gives us another hint. It says the earth was formless and void. The word was is hoitah in the Hebrew. And the word was is also translated became or came to pass. It came to pass that the earth was formless and void. Or the earth became void. Formless and void. That's even more compelling. Now all of a sudden I'm saying, okay, God created the heavens and the earth, and then the earth became formless and void. Something happened. Further evidence in Isaiah chapter 45, and you can turn there or just listen. Isaiah chapter 45 verse 18. In fact, turn there, because this is really critical in understanding this situation with verse 2 of Genesis. Isaiah 45, 18. Isaiah is real close to the middle. So it's an easy way to get there quickly. God is speaking through the prophet. And down in verse 18, Isaiah 45, Thus says the Lord, Who created the heavens... He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it, and watch this, note this, and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I did not say to the offspring of Yaakov, seek me in a waste place. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. The phrase a waste place in both verses is tohu bohu. So the Lord declares through Isaiah, I do not create Tohu Va Bohu. That's not how I do it. Well, verse 2 says the earth became or was Tohu Va Bohu. Therefore, God did not create that way. Therefore, God had already created the heavens and the earth. But the earth became this utter disaster. Because God doesn't create formless and void. What I like to say to my teenage kids is God doesn't make waste. God doesn't make mistakes. God doesn't create destroyed lives. That's not how He functions. That's not what He does. If you are here tonight, it's because God ordained life in you. It's because God said, I have value and worth in you, in who you are. I made you. That's why I used to tell teenagers in my youth group years and years and 5 billion years ago. (laughs) I used to say, I really don't care about your self-confidence. I care about your God-confidence. I don't care about your self-esteem. I care about your God-esteem. Because if I'm banking everything on my self-esteem and I'm having a bad day with lots of pimples on my face, where does my esteem go? But if my God-esteem... How does God esteem me? What does God think of me? I can tell you without question tonight, every person gathered in this place, God created you and formed you as someone of value and worth to Him. So valuable, so worthy, that He died on the cross for you. That's great worth. So our esteem comes from Him. He doesn't create formless and void. What He does do is satisfy and fulfill with meaningful life. That's the God of the Bible. Psalm 1611, You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Or James 1.17, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Know what that means? That means it's always good when it comes from God. There's no change in that. When He gives, He gives good. He makes good. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among His creatures. So, what was it that made the earth tohu va bohu Formless and void. Again, we weren't there. So we can only guess. And what we can surmise is that by Genesis chapter 3, the serpent of old was in the garden. Now, that's the first time we see Satan is there in the garden. So do you think there's a connection? I do. Again, it's, it's surmise. But I think it's entirely likely that what happened is in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then Satan fell. For the third of the angels and messed up God's creation. That kind of fits the whole paradigm of our lives, doesn't it? God creates a beautiful little baby, brings him into the world, gives him life and joy and, you know, and then Satan goes in and messes it up. And then God comes along and says, I'm gonna recreate something in you. I'm gonna make you fresh and new. So there's an interesting parallel there. Isaiah 14, verse 12 says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, O son of dawn. You've been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. Isaiah 14, 16, those who see you will gaze at you, they will ponder over you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble? Interesting language. Who shook kingdoms? Who made the world like a wilderness or a wasteland? Uh, Tohu bohu, perhaps? Who overthrew its cities, who did not allow his prisoners to go home? Ezekiel 28.17, also speaking of the devil, said your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. So, some think, and I'm one of them, that think that God created the heavens and the earth Satan fell, and the earth became formless and void. Now you can disagree with that, and that's fine, because this is not a salvation issue. But it is a curiosity, and it does answer the question, why would God say in Isaiah, I do not create formless and void, but verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1 says, the earth was formless and void. How do you reconcile that? Very simply, God didn't create formless and void. But the earth became that way. Jesus said in John 10.10, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. No, that's not right. He says the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. So again, God does not create chaos, but He can bring order out of chaos. I am so thankful. (laughs) because when my life gets chaotic as we talked about Sunday morning I serve a God who knows how to bring order even out of the messes that I make no wonder the Spirit the Spirit is there moving over the surface of the waters note that darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters literally moving note this in your Bible some translations have it better there's one area where the NSB gives kind of a lame word translation. The word should translate hovering. Or even fluttering would be okay. The Spirit was fluttering like a bird flutters. Was hovering like, a, like an eagle would hover over the surface of the waters. That's what the word means. What's interesting is that word is used twice in Torah in the first five books same word is translated moving or hovering and in the other location it's Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 11 which reads like an eagle that stirs up its nest that hovers over its young he spread his wings and caught them he carried them on his pinions there Moses is speaking of Israel And talking about how God's God's intimate association with Israel was, was like that of a mother eagle fluttering, hovering, and carrying Israel on His wings. Same word used here of the Spirit fluttering or hovering over the surface of the waters. Aren't you glad the Holy Spirit hovers? Now, I don't like it when my children hover. You know? Or my wife hovers, or maybe vice versa. If Cheryl's trying to type on her computer and I'm hovering, oh, you know, you ever you notice when you're, you're trying to type someone in something and someone's hovering, you can't type right. You will, you'll have more spelling errors in that few seconds of someone hovering than any other time. But the spirit's different. The spirit who hovers. See, I'm so thankful that even when the enemy causes catastrophe. Even when the, the devilish deeds leave me empty and wiped out, the Spirit of God not only hovers, but carries me on His pinions. Lifts me in up and out of the mess. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 7, Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit, who carries us, who hovers over us, for all the chaos and the mess of our sometimes wasteful lives. Again, we weren't created to be that way. God knows that. And so He will send His Spirit to hover and to care for us, to stir us up a bit if He needs to. So I encourage you, if your life is chaotic, even if it's not, to ask the Holy Spirit, Spirit of the living God, to move in you and alongside you and even upon you, as Jesus says He will, let Him wash you with the water and with the Word. After all, He is the Holy Spirit who hovers over the waters. Right? So He hovers to cleanse. He flutters to lift up. He is there to support you and walk you through. And He's there to make clear, all the more clear, the very things that we are studying. So so we come to verse 3 having completely cleared up the issues between verses 1 and (laughs) 2. And in verse 3, then God said, let there be light. And there was light. Literally, light be. I like that. Like flipping on a switch. Try it at home sometime. It's empowering. Light beep. (laughs) God didn't have a switch. Light be, he says. And there was light. Or, and light was God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. Oh, come on. How do you separate light from darkness? Well, John 1 verse 5 says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Jesus said in John 3.19, this is the judgment that light has come into the world. And men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. John said in 1 John 1.5, this is the message we've heard from Him and announced to you, that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. So for God to say, Light be, he's He's just emanating now, right? Tapping into who He is, He is light. And He's bringing light onto the scene, and the created light that we see is a teachable reality of the light we do not see. Meaning? Meaning the perfection and the illumination of God. It's a great picture for us. Light versus dark, and how the light clarifies things, shows us things, makes things very clear. As opposed to, you know, that time of evening, the dusky time, before it's even dark. And obviously, darkness is no good, but that time when you're driving along. So, the reason I got glasses again. Honestly, I first started thinking about it because driving down the road at dusk was getting dangerous. Things were vague. You know, road signs. What does that say? Oh, stop! (laughs) Darkness and dusk and things that are unclear. But God is light. God's not a game player. God is clarity and, and assurance. He makes things visible and tangible and understandable. He's a revealer of the truth. But again, God separated the light from the dark. Well, that's got to be one of those weird little creation myths. Really, science has learned that light divides. In fact, there are three divisions of light. There's light, color, and sound. All are divisions of light. They're based on vibrations at different frequencies. So if you slow frequencies down, you'll hear sound. If you speed them up, you begin to see color. Speed them up even more, and you have light. Science has figured that one out. Well, caught up with Scripture that said God, God divided the light and the dark. And in verse 5, God called the light, He called the light, Boker, day. And the darkness He called, Ereb, night. Bocaire and a red. I like the word boker because it's that it's what they say every morning in Israel. Boker tov. Boker tov. Tov is good, so it's day good, but you know, in Hebrew, so we got to read it the way they do. Good day. Good morning. Morning is boker. Day is is boker. So you've got evening and you've got morning he called the light day and he called the darkness night but but notice then he flips it around and says and there was evening and there was morning one day. Well those Jewish people got it backwards. We start the day in the morning. I know because the alarm goes off. Shakes me out of a good sleep. Forces me up. Morning, evening. No, no. There was evening and there was morning one day. In the Bible, by the way, the word day is yom, y-o-m, yom, and when it's used with an ordinal or a number, it always means a 24-hour period. Was the earth created in six days? Well, according to Genesis 1, verses 3 through 28, yes, six 24-hour periods of time. Not day one as a billion years. Day two is 1.7 million. Day three is maybe another couple of billion. No, people want... Again, it's the appeasing of evolution. Don't do it. Don't give an inch of ground from literal Scripture. Just let the Scripture be the Scripture and let science catch up eventually. It will. It will. Ricky Gervais was wrong. Mention him on Sunday, and he says, "A thousand years from now, all the science books will still be here. No, they won't. They'll be on the trash heap because most of them will be proven wrong by then, as is evidenced by the last two thousand years. But God's word remains forever. So just trust it, because you will find it again and again and again to be proven true in the Bible yom twenty four hour period." Especially with a a numeral or an ordinal. And lest anyone misunderstand or want to continue to question that, really your argument isn't with me or those who study Genesis chapter 1. Your argument is with God himself, who declared in Exodus 20 verse 11, In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. If God didn't do it in six days, God is a liar. And that offends me. Because God is not a man that he should lie. He cannot do anything but what is in his nature. And that is tell the truth. God declared six days. And in the seventh day, rest. And we'll come back to that. But why a rev boker? Why evening and morning? I mean, Cat Stevens really blew it. Those of you who know, back in the seventies, what he should have sung was "Evening has broken, like the first evening," not "Morning has broken." That song's all wrong. I guess we can cut him a little slack. Cat Stevens in 1977 changed his name to Yusuf Islam, became a Muslim, which is ironic because his real name is Stephen Katz. It is Stephen Katz. He's Jewish. Little side note. See, that's why you come, because you get these interesting little bits of information that you look at and you go, I got nothing to do with that. Anyway, Ereb. Ereb. Evening. Listen, the Hebrew word Ereb, though it is evening, also specifically describes things that are vague. Dark. You might even say formless. Void. A rev. Chuck Missler says the time when encroaching darkness denies us the ability to discern form, shape, and identity. Like me on Highway 20 without glasses. Thus it becomes a term for twilight or evening. When things start to become nonspecific. Right? That's a rev. Boker which is mourning, also describes that which is visible and discernible and understandable. Chuck Missler continues, It's a perception of order. It's a relief from obscurity. It thus is associated with being able to begin to discern forms, shapes, and distinct identities, breaking forth of light, revealing, hence denotata- denotatively, dawn and morning. And that's really interesting because God's daily process of creation, literally day 1 through 6, every day written, His process seems to have repeated this issue of the darkness to the light. Like taking the darkness and bringing it to light. As if to say, are you in the dark? Come to me and I'll give you light. Are you in the evening? Are things vague? Are things non discernible to you? Come to me, and I will show you light. And Jesus said in John 3.21, He who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifested as as having been wrought in God, or produced by, or done by, or accomplished by God in the light. Missler also said it's noteworthy that neither of these, evening or morning, are recorded on the seventh day. And thus their original significance may have been to designate the increments of creation in those first six days. Verse 6. And then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the The waters. God made the expanse, some of your translations may say the firmament, and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. Well, what's the expanse? Verse 8, God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning, a second day. Oh, note this, look back at verse 5. Note that verse 8 says a second day, but verse 5 says one day. Why? Why? In fact, you'll have a second day, and then you'll have a third day, and then a fourth day, and a fifth day, and a sixth day. But the first day, he doesn't say you had a first day. He says, and there was evening, and there was morning, one day. Why? Because God is establishing one 24-hour day. And then after that, you have a second day. And then a third, like the one day. Scripture's very clear. Again, you read it literally, and there's really no other way to take it. If you try to bend it and twist it to fit some kind of theory of man, that's when it starts to get tweaked. So one day, and now the second day, but I find it fascinating that God called the expanse heaven, so what we're seeing here is that there's an expanse, there's heaven between the waters. What a cool thing. Wet, but cool. How does that work? What Genesis 1, verses 6-8 through 8 describes is waters below and waters above the firmament, above the heavens, above the troposphere and the stratosphere. Water up there, water down here. So as God is creating, first he brings the light, and then he divides out, he separates out waters so that we now have waters above and below. Now, that shouldn't freak you out too much, because even today, waters gather above the expanse and then come back to town to us in the form of rain. Have you ever thought how weird that is, rain? On a cloudy day, we're sitting under buckets of water. It's a good thing that God is not a practical joker, because the fun he could have... (laughs) Cheryl, you're probably remembering that time when we were at the Disneyland Hotel... Yeah, I don't know if I should even tell that story. You guys will think so poorly of me. I've grown out of this. We were up on the, what was it, the 25th floor. We were way up high of the Disneyland Hotel. And I'm, I'm standing, now this, I was young. We, we didn't have kids yet, so I didn't have any responsibility except to Cheryl, and she was cool. <laughs> So I'm looking down and way, way down. And the entrance literally was straight down below. we could see people coming and going. And I thought, I wonder. (laughs) So I had a big, big cup. And I just filled it up with water to the top. And went out on the balcony and looked. and, And I saw these people coming out. And I thought, well, there's no way I can time this. So I just went, Pour. I kid you not. I mean, it was perfect. <laughs> it couldn't have been more perfect. It was a hot Southern California evening. It was still enough light you could see, and all we could see was the water just disappeared. And here come this couple, and they got right in front of the door, and all of a sudden, the ground all around them just went, Shh, and they're going like this. I'm like, shut the window, shut the window. So water from above. <laughs> And water below. (laughs) Can you even believe what Pastor Rick did? I wasn't a pastor at the time. This was pre-ministry. It was post-salvation, so I'm forgiven. There was repentance, the whole thing. Anyway, U.S. annual rainfall is 39 inches a year. Seattle gets 37 of that. And Mount Waialeale in Kauai, check this out, gets 450 inches average rainfall a year. Think it rains a lot here. Move to Kauai. And they have a, a record rainfall there on that mount of 660 inches of rain in one year. So there are, there's already water above, and there's, and there's water below, but this is more than that. And all indications, both biblically and scientifically, speak of a water canopy. And science has pointed this out. Fascinating. That somewhere in Earth's history, there had to be some kind of vapor or water canopy that literally surrounded the entire planet. A canopy that, while existing, would have regulated climate and wind. Therefore, no tornadoes, no hurricanes, no big storms like that at all. A canopy that, as the sun shone through it, would produce a sweet, balmy, tropical, global greenhouse. And no rain. You wouldn't need it because the rain, you just have dew in the morning and plenty of moisture in the air and the water canopy above and the waters below... Scripture, by the way, confirms there was no rain at this time. Genesis chapter 2, verse 5, we'll talk about that perhaps next week. Cosmic radiation would be drastically reduced. I mean, that water canopy would like, be like a big bottle of Sunblock 95 for the whole earth. Animal and human health and longevity would have been affected by this. By the way, all aging has to do with cosmic radiation. So if you're feeling a little old tonight, it's because the sun's doing its work on you. It burns, and it's not just sunburns. You can wear hats and you can put on sunblock, but coming out of the sun are these atomic, subatomic leptons called neutrinos. A little science for you. And these neutrinos, they emit from the sun, and they literally come down to earth, and it doesn't matter where you are on the earth, because they go straight through the earth... And they affect life on the other side of the earth, even in the night. And what these neutrinos do is they cause the aging process, they cause decay, they bring about cellular mutation, and you can't get away from them. Ultimately, they bring about death. So much for dermatology. (laughs) Genesis chapter 6 verse 3, then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. And that's a fascinating verse because it was 120 years later that the flood came. But it's also a fascinating verse because after the flood, man ceased to live much longer than 120 years. God said, That's it. No more longevity. People in the antediluvian, that is the pre-flood era, according to Scripture, lived eight, nine hundred years? Long time. But after the flood, we see, biblically speaking, life declines rapidly. Abraham lived 180, is 186 years? 180 years, somewhere around there. But most human life after that, if you live 120 years, wow, somehow you're avoiding neutrinos, I guess. <laughs> Could it be the flood also was the result of God just poking a hole in the water canopy and saying, that's it? Because the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, that's significant. I'll tell you why when we get to Genesis 7. On the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were opened. If you have ever heard the word deluge? This world has never known a deluge like it knew in the flood because it wasn't just water from above it was water from below and both were meeting in the middle a massive, massive outpouring of water but the water canopy explains some remarkable discoveries that you don't know what science doesn't know what to do with otherwise other than this vapor canopy other than a a greenhouse earth fossils of tropical life and, and vegetation in places discovered like Antarctica or the Arctic Circle how could that ever have been tropic? Well, not in the world the way it is now. Woolly mammoths discovered carcasses frozen in Siberia with tropical plants in the digestive tract. How did that get there? How did the wool? I mean, the woolly mammoth. We understand he's woolly. It's cold. We get that. But how tropical food? Hmm. Charcoal deposits of forests once existing at the South Pole and discovered below 200 feet of ice. How do you explain these things, water canopy? Scripture already has explained to us that God separated the waters above the firmament and below the firmament. Verse 9. And then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered in one place. And let the dry land appear. And it was so. And you know what they say about the continents, right? It looks as though the continents were all together at one time. That they actually kind of pieced together like a jigsaw puzzle? Well, that absolutely fits. If all the waters are gathered into one place, that means dry land would appear. And so that would be in one place at one time. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. And the gathering of the waters He called seas. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning. A third day. I love the architecture of creation. God knew what He was doing. Paul, you I mean, think about your architectural work and, and, and in, in designing this building. How we talked about, you know, first thing Paul asked was, "What do you want?" And I said, "A bigger barn," and he did it. He did it. And we began to discuss things and needs and issues. And so this building was was formed with a lot of thinking in mind, looking ahead, what, what would be the things that are most necessary and we would need as a fellowship. So the house was built before the kids moved in. That's what happens with creation. Note that the first three days of creation parallel the second three days of creation. And I mean day for day. Day 1 parallels day 4. Day 2 parallels day 5. Day 3 parallels day 6. In that, day 1 prepared a home for that which God created in day 4. And day 2 prepares a home for that which God created in day 5. And day 3 made a home for that which God created in day 6. There's utter uniformity and perfect order in the creation of God. Day one, what did God do? He made a home for the sun, moon, and stars. Day two, He made a home for fish and birds. And day three, He made a home for land animals and man. By the way, on the third day, we see the first fruit trees created, which is interesting to me. Why is that? First fruits on the third day. First fruits on the third day, remembered by the Feast of First Fruits, Reshit, same word as in the beginning, Be'Reshit. The Feast of First Fruits that was on the third day following Passover, and it's finally and ultimately re- fulfilled in Christ's resurrection. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 20, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. So in creation, on the third day, we have first fruits. In verse 14. And then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. Let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, that'd be the sun, and the lesser light to govern the night, the moon. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. He had already separated light from dark, but now He places the sun, moon, and stars. And He sets the lights up so that there would be light for this planet. And there was evening and there was morning a fourth day. What does it mean that He gave lights for signs and seasons and days and years, verse 14? The word seasons, and we've talked about this actually in a prophecy update. It was a while ago, maybe a year, two years ago perhaps. Yeah, I think it was two years ago. We talked about seasons as moedim. Moedim in the Hebrew is translated appointed times or seasons. The same word is used throughout Leviticus 23 to describe all seven of the feasts of Israel. That they are the Moedim. So let the lights that govern the sky, sun, moon, and stars, let them be for for seasons, for Moedim. And there would later be feast purposes, the feast of the new moon. And the feast would be governed by the the timetable that God set up in the sky. As everything is flowing and, and moving in the skies above, God set that up and said, let them be for appointed times. So you know when the new moon festival is going to come. So that you know when it's time for Yom Teruah. By the way, the last Sunday of this month, we're going to do a Yom Teruah service again. A Feast of Trumpets. We'll have worship. We'll talk about the Feast of Trumpets. We'll go outside and make a big noise. And then we'll come in and have dessert. Because that's how we do things at the bridge. <laughs> Seasons. Moedim. And then there's signs. Let them also be for signs. The word signs there is Otot which comes from the root word ot, which is appointed times. So you've got uh, appointed times, appointed signs, sorry, and then and then you have another word that's connected to ot, Maserot. Maserot. Now you don't have to jot this down unless you really want to, it's fine, but Maserot is the Hebrew word for the constellations. And so the Lord says, let them be for signs and for seasons and days and years and we know that there are signs in the heavens the constellations and the bible refers to these job 38 verse 31 can you bind the chains of pleiades or loose the cords of orion the belt of orion can you find orion's belt i was so happy when i first found orion's belt My dad pointed it out. And for years, people would say, do you know any of the constellations? And I'd say, Orion's Belt! I can find Orion's Belt, and I can pour water on people's heads, and that's about it. (laughs) Can you lead forth, Job 38-32, a constellation in its season and guide the bear with her satellites, the bear being a constellation. So the Bible recognizes these constellations, and this explains these seasons and signs, signs in the heavens. This explains why on the floor in beautiful mosaic tile of an ancient 2nd century synagogue in the ruins of a town called Sepphoris in the lower Galilee there is a Hebrew zodiac that's in the floor showing the the Hebrew Maserot. Where are you going with this, Rick? Listen, the signs... And seasons are there for the feasts and for recognition of things. They are not there for soothsaying. They are not there for fortune telling. God is absolutely opposed to that. In fact, if truth be told, and we said this on Sunday, that the real reason for the signs and the seasons is to direct our attention Godward. See, you and I, James Taylor once sang, can be wise guys too. It was the Magi. Who were looking at the heavens. They were reading the Maserot. And they were saying, things are lining up in such a way that there's a king coming. And they made their way to Bethlehem. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived at Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born, king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. That star was a signpost that led the Magi to Jesus. Interesting. They read the signs, and they came, note this, they came, don't miss this, they came to worship. They read the signs, and they came to worship God. Which is why there are signs in the heavens. Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Why the vast universe? Why all of this? What a scientist might call wasted space. It's not wasted space. It is to the glory of God. And so we worship. And by the way, it's not the Moadim and it's not the Mazarot into which we put our hope. It's the Messiah. It's Jesus. And even old Balaam, that stinky old seer. Numbers chapter 24, verse 17 said, I see Him, I see Him, but not now. I behold Him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob, a scepter shall rise from Israel. Early prophecy of the rising of Jesus Christ. Verse 20, Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. And God created, verse 21, the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful, multiply, fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning a fifth day. And you know God was just rejoicing in this. Remember Sunday morning we talked about this. Proverbs chapter 8 describing wisdom and talking about wisdom. Rejoicing in God at the time of creation. And God's doing all these marvelous things. I get excited when I go out on my porch and I see two eagles fly by at the same time. Whoa. And God's saying to all the birds as He's making them. I mean, how incredible. How fantastic. How fantastic. How almost unbelievable, and yet the Bible is clear, God in creation making all of these things, even making the sea monsters, and I think that's just cool, verse 21, God created the great sea monsters, or sea serpents, it could translate, the Hebrew word is tananim, the tananim, that word tananim it's used ten times in the Hebrew Scriptures, the great sea monsters. Psalm 74.13 says, You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea monsters in the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. And the rabbis believe that the tananim speaks also of Leviathan. That those two Hebrew words, Leviathan and tananim, are synonymous, and both speak of the great sea monsters. But what's interesting is that not only is this a true accounting of creation, as Moses said, God created the great sea monsters. He made the Tanninim. But Moses also right here takes a moment to repudiate a pagan creation myth of his day. The pagan creation myth is about a battle that resulted in the creation of the earth. It's a Babylonian myth between the gods Marduk and Tiamat. Or Rahab is the other word, of, other name for Tiamat. Rahab, which is Leviathan. The Babylonian culture believed these two gods had a massive battle and that's what built up the mountains and created the seas. They were fighting back and forth and, and it's like a Marvel Comics movie. I mean, come on. Job 26, verse 12 says, He quieted the sea by His power And by his understanding, he shattered Rahab, that is the pagan view. By his breath, the heavens are cleared, and his hand has pierced the fleeing serpent. So what Moses is doing here, while he's telling what happened and he's describing that, he calls specifically out the great sea monster as a means of saying, God is maker. God is authority. The sea monsters in battle did not make this world. God made the sea monsters. He's an authority over it all. God created the African bull elephant. And I like at Disneyland, they say, and a creature even more feared, his mother-in-law. <laughs> and God created the great blue whale on which eight elephants could stand on its back. It's so huge. And God created the Tananim. And Psalm 148, verse 7 says, Praise the Lord from the earth, sea monsters, and all deeps. Praise the Lord. By the way, in Job's description of this, listen again. Job says he quieted the sea with his power. Well, who did that? With a word, Jesus said, hush, and the sea became still. Job said, you gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. He says, wait a minute, I'm wrong verse. He says... (laughs) his hand was pierced or has pierced the fleeing serpent and it reminds me of jesus who by his pierced hands crushed the fleeing serpent jesus indicated here even even over and above the great sea monsters well day six the sixth day and we are moving like lightning here verse 24 then god said Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind, and God saw that it was good. Now note this. The creation of these living creatures deals a death blow to an idea called theistic evolution. And there are those in Christianity who believe in a theistic evolution that God initiated. Oh, God created. He initiated the evolutionary process and then it just took over from there. And that's not what the Bible describes. As a matter of fact, we see here in these verses three specific categories of animals that are listed. Note this. We see beasts, which are wild animals of all kinds. We see cattle, which cattle in in the Hebrew can also refer to all domesticated animals. So cattle, uh, sheep, rams, goats, domesticated. And then creeping things, which would be reptiles and amphibians. So you've got three classes of animals that are described here. Beasts, cattle, creeping things. And more so than that, seven times in verses 21 through 24, we read the phrase, after their kind. After their kind, after their kind, after their We saw that with the plants too. The plants and the fruit trees are all after their kind. There's a type. And there's a strata. And with the animals, we see seven times here that the animals are after their, or literally, the phrase is, after its kind. So the cattle after its kind, and the beasts after its kind, and the creeping things after its kind. And this shows amazing scientific understanding from the most ancient of times. That Moses would have this kind of clarity... And and that is that there are changes within species after their kind, but never across species. The cattle are never after the kind of the creeping things. And the creeping things are never after the kind of the beast. They're all within their phylum, the animal phylum, which is a direct lineage within a group. While there are horse flies, you don't get a horse from a fly. (laughs) You don't get a horse from a cow, different phylum. You you don't get a cow from a dog or a dog from a cat or a cat from a rat or a rat from a bat or a gnat. (laughs) Someone's sitting there going, okay, more rhymes, more rhymes. There's got to be more. And there's not a shred of crossover evidence. See, here's the thing. In the entire fossil record, there is not a single shred of crossover between species. Can I just say, side note on the fossil record, the fossil record is not that big. There are 2,100 total fossils in the record that people have tied to specific kinds of animals. 2,100. Well, that's a lot, Rick, after all the study and all the digging and all the looking. And by the way, a fossil is not easy to come by. You don't just die and become a fossil unless you eat a lot of Twinkies. (laughs) That, it just doesn't happen that easily. The, the, the circumstances have to be correct to actually form and fossilize something, which is why people say, well, there's no evidence of, of, of human remains with dinosaurs. Well, there's barely any evidence of dinosaurs. And, and there is evidence of dinosaurs. And I believe dinosaurs existed. And I believe there were huge lizards. And, and we can get into all that, especially when we talk about the flood. But why is there no, you know, human beings with... Well, well, be careful, because... You're talking about the fossil record. And out of billions of years of quote-unquote life on earth, wouldn't you think we'd have more than a couple thousand bones? Interesting. But again, even for what we have, not a single one of an animal crossing over from one kind to another kind, God made it clear from the very beginning that everything would stay in their lane Cats, stay in your lane. (laughs) Cat dog was a cartoon. It's not a thing. All right? Stay in your lane. After their kind, after their kind. Every single one. And in verse 26, then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the cattle. And over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And we've just come to a subtle change in the creation narrative. It's no longer let there be, which is yahi. It's now ne'ashay, which is let us make. Up till now, five days of creation, it's all been about let there be, let there be, let there be. And now it's let us make. For the first time, he's referring in the plural form to us. Who is us? Now, Christians, you know the answer. Us is Elohim. Elohim, the plural form of God. Us is not L one God, or Elah, two gods, but Elohim, three or more. Us, the, this is Elohim. Let us make man in our image. And what's interesting is the rabbis, and you can always try and get around God's Word if you're just intent not to accept it at face value. If you don't want to believe that Elohim is three or more, if you reject this Christian notion of the Trinity, then as a good rabbi, you've got to come up with something else. And so they deny the triunity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Elohim, let us make man in our image. And they say the plural us here refers to God and angels. God's talking to the angels. Let us make man in our image. Problem is, there's not a single angel mentioned in the creation narrative. Chapters 1 and 2. They're not here. Well, they may be here, actually. But they're not mentioned as part of the deal. Job chapter 38, verse 4. God says, "...where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth?" And then in verse 7, "...when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God, the bene Elohim," which is a phrase for angels... When all the bene Elohim shouted for joy. So, okay, angels were present, but angels were not consulted on creation. God didn't have them all gathered around saying, okay, guys, what next? Troy, a dog. Okay, we can do that, you know. What next, guys? We've got some leftover parts. A platypus, you know. <laughs> Angels were not consulted. How do you know? I know because Isaiah, let me just read this to you, Isaiah chapter 40, jot it down, notate this, maybe go look it up later. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 12 says he has measured or who has measured the waters of the ho- in the hollow of his hand. Who, who's done that God? Who marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Or as His Counselor has informed Him. Paul quotes that later saying, Not us. With whom did he consult, and who gave him understanding, and who taught him in the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and informed him of the way of understanding? Down in verse 21 of Isaiah 40. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. It is He who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. And He goes on to say, who has been God's counselor? Who did God consult when He created? And the answer is clear, God alone did the work of creation. God alone. Let me be clear. Elohim alone. Father spirit, and Son. That was the sum total of the committee on the creation of the world and all the universe. Besides the fact, we were not made in the image of angels. We were created in the image of Elohim. So God did not consult with angels upon the creation story. Let us make man in our image. It was let us make man in our image. Which means to a degree, and we'll talk about this more on Sunday, we are after the kind of God. We are not gods. Don't get it wrong. Don't go Mormon on me. We are not gods, nor will we rise to the point of being gods. But we are God's G-O-D apostrophe S. We belong to Him. And we're made in His image and that is an amazing thought. However, even though we are made in His image, I've realized that God doesn't consult with me either. Have you noted that? Uh, you're nodding, yes, we know He doesn't consult with you, Rick. No, I'm talking about you. God does things and does not necessarily consult with you. Hey, is it okay if I if I turn the screws on your life and make you uncomfortable? Is that alright with you? You okay if this tragedy happens and I make this amazing, incredible good out of it that you can't possibly know until you get there? you okay with that? I'd be like, no, no. He does not consult with me. He doesn't ask my opinion. He doesn't say, well, Rick, I don't know. What do you think? Like Henry Blake. Cracks me up. This, it, how long are we? We're already over time, so it doesn't matter. So in MASH... <laughs> One of my favorite scenes in MASH, Henry Blake. I'm sure I've told you this before. If I have, just stop me or let me go. Probably easier. So Henry Blake in MASH, he's, he's sitting there around the table. He's got Hawkeye and he's got BJ and Margaret. He's got his whole staff there. And if you know anything about the this MASH, well, Blake was just kind of a flake. <laughs> and so he, But he's the commanding officer and he's sitting there at the table and he goes all right, guys, what do you think? And they all give their opinions and they basically say, Henry, it comes down to you. you got to make this call. And he goes, all right, all right. This is the. These are the times that separate the men from the boys. This is the time when true leadership is felt. This is the time when the tough decisions have to be made. Gosh, I don't know, guys, what do you think? <laughs> I know you're thinking all that for that. God doesn't do that. God doesn't say, Rick, I want to do this with your life, but I don't know. What do you think? He doesn't consult with me. He says, Rick, my thoughts are not your thoughts. In your ways, they're not my ways. You do not think like I think. You don't do what I do. I want you to, and I want to teach you how to, but, but you don't naturally... You're just not... Listen. Though He doesn't need my counsel... He does invite me to consult with him. He does say, "But if you'd like my counsel, you have it anytime you ask. It's yours immediately. Isaiah 8:19 should not a people consult their God? John fifteen sixteen. Jesus said, you did not choose me. Let's get that straight. But I chose you and appointed you that you would go bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He may give to you. I called you and now I want you to consult with me. I want you to receive my counsel. Psalm 16, verse 7 says, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. So if God wakes you up in the middle of the night to pray, He's going to give you some counsel. Just listen to Him on it. And the counsel of the Lord at creation was His own. The us, the let us, was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As Deuteronomy 6.4 declares, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our Elohim. The Lord is Echad. The Lord is one And the word is a plurality of oneness. Verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. God blessed them. God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and every living thing that moves on the earth. And then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and every bird of the sky, and everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. Vegetarians. There were no meat eaters at creation. Along with the beauty of the water canopy that kept things fresh in the greenhouse and kept the harmful rays of the sun, the food was fruits and veggies, baby. It was all vegetarian, and I'm sure that Adam and Eve had a VW bus with a peace sign on the back of it. (laughs) God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And there is so much in those verses. We're going to come back on Sunday and spend some time talking about man, Adam. Adam used for man generically here, though it would be also the name of the first man, but God created man in His image. Male and female He created them. We're going to talk about those implications some more on Sunday as well. But I need to finish out the narrative. So hang with me. A couple more minutes. Let's finish the Bereshit sheet in the beginning with chapter 2, verse 1. And thus... The heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed His work which He had done and He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had done. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it He rested from all His work which God had created and made. And the Hebrew word for rest is... Any guesses? Shabbat. Sabbath. Sabbath. On the seventh day, God took a Sabbath. He enjoyed Sabbath rest. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, giving the Ten Commandments right smack dab in the middle, God says, Remember Shabbat. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy verse 11 of Exodus 20, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Again, God declaring six 24-hour days and a seventh day of Shabbat. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now stay with me just a moment longer here. Kidner says in his commentary, God's finished task is sealed in the words, He rested. I love that. And Kidner says, listen, it's the rest of achievement, not of inactivity, for he nurtures what he creates. God rested on the Sabbath day, which doesn't mean he just snoozed all day long. It was a rest of accomplishment. Do you know how that feels? You have a big project, you have some big issue, you have something you've been working on for a long time. I'll tell you what, when Christopher comes home, we are going to have a day of rest. We're not gonna sit around and snooze and be like, oh, that was so hard. We're gonna be like, yes. There will be a sense of, of accomplishment that God did what he set out to do. That there's rest in this. And that's that's truly what's behind Shabbat. It is the rest of accomplishment. Because God finished creating and he rested, but that doesn't mean he went to sleep. They just passed out. It doesn't mean that every now and then I'm like, God, I need your help. Well, he's taking a nap. <laughs> No, Psalm 121, verse 1. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And remember, it is His Spirit who hovers, who carries on His pinions, who is actively engaged in our lives though He rested. You know what? What? God invites His people to join Him in the rest of achievement. What I'm calling this evening the rest of creation. It's not about the rest of creation. Get it over with. It's the rest of the accomplishment of creation. What does that mean? The rest of accomplishment. I'll read this to you. Well, Go ahead and turn, turn over to Hebrews 4. We'll finish out there. Hebrews chapter 4. That Shabbat, that rest, and, and so many, countless people misunderstand this. Many Jewish people today, with their Shabbat elevators and their Shabbat laws and, and their rules and restrictions that make Shabbat not a day of rest but a day of tension because there's so much you've got to obey to make sure you don't get through the day, you know, sinning against God. To Seventh day Adventism, that says if you don't keep the Sabbath day, you are in violation. Perhaps those who take it to the extreme, you are in violation even to the point of losing your salvation if you don't remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And this is what Sabbath is, what Shabbat is all about. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 4 For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, he said this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, and God. Rested on the seventh day from all His works. Down in verse 9. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. What? God rested. God invited His people, enter into my rest. And they did not do it. There remains a rest. Israel still doesn't understand. Still doesn't get it. Still misses what the rest of God is really all about. Yesterday, quick note, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu made a stunning pronouncement. He says, should he be re-elected, and granted this is a political move, but should he be uh, re-elected the annexation of the Jordan Valley in Judea and Samaria? That is, all of the Jewish settlements, they will annex. They will reclaim as rightful property of Israel this section of the West Bank. That's huge. That's world-changing. And I'm kind of on the woohoo side. I'm like, yes! God gave it to him. It's, it's Israel's land. Israel should have it. And yet, at the same time, the implications for volatility in the land are pretty big. How would you feel if you're a Palestinian living on the West Bank, and you're being told Israel's going to come back and take that land? And effectively, with that, with that pronouncement yesterday... And really, before this, with the Trump administration, the two-state solution's dead. And it's not on the table anymore. So it's fascinating what's going on there. I just mentioned this for one reason. While I support the idea, and I believe the land belongs to Israel and should go to Israel, the truth is, as far as Israel is concerned today, the fight is still on. There's still no rest. Enemies on every side. We've got to protect. We need Iron Dome. We need our missiles. We need our nuclear program. Don't tell anyone we have it. Well, we do, but don't tell anyone. And the fight is still there. Protection. And God's saying... Well, God's saying, Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15, in repentance and rest, you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you were not willing. And you said, no, we will flee on horses. Therefore, you will flee... We will ride on swift horses, therefore, those who pursue you shall be swift. And one thousand will flee at the threat of one, and you will all three flee at the threat of five, until your left is a flag on a mountaintop, as a signal on a hill, exhausted, weary, desolate, or we might even say, Tohu Vabohu. If you refuse to rest, you will end up a wasteland. And so the Hebrew writer says in verse 10, for the one who has entered his rest, that is God's rest, has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be, to be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. And here it is. Our rest, our rest depends on his accomplishment. See, the rest of the seventh day was a rest of achievement, a rest of accomplishment. He was done. And He sat back and He proclaimed the day holy, a day of rest. And our rest in Him depends on what He did at Calvary. And the only way to rest as a follower of Jesus Christ is to trust in Jesus for your salvation. The only way to truly rest as a disciple of Jesus Christ is to trust that He knows what He's doing with your life. And you may not. And it may seem a wasteland and it may seem chaotic, but He knows what He's doing. Our rest and the rest that we're called to, it's not a sluggish lethargy. It's not nap time for the saints. No, it is a rest of satisfaction. It's a rest of sanctification. It's a confident rest that strengthens our hands for the work that we do have. What's that? The Gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our work but it's a work that we can rest in because, well, Matthew 12.8 says Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Father, we join you tonight asking that you teach us how to rest in your accomplishments. How to enter into your rest. The Hebrew pastor was getting at So I believe what You were pointing to all the way back on the seventh day of creation, Lord, as if to say, You've done it all, and now it's time to rest. Well, Lord Jesus, You've done it all. There is nothing I can do to add to my salvation, Lord. There's nothing I can do to take away from it should I trust in You. And so I pray, Holy Spirit of the living God, even now, would You hover over us in this place? Would You flutter, as it were, over our hearts and bring us tonight. We may not be able to fix tomorrow or the day after that or the next week, but would You bring us tonight to a place of sweet rest? Would You increase our faith, Lord, that we might know You've done all things and You have done all things well? Oh, we glorify You for the creation of the earth. We praise You for the the sheer power and glory and splendor of a God who, without consultation, created the entire world in six days. We believe You, Lord, for the rest that You offer. In Jesus' name, amen.